Hello and welcome to another episode of Fully Scored, episode 21 to be precise. I hope you're all keeping well and thanks for tuning in again to listen to this episode. If you're new to the podcast, don't forget you can listen to all of our other 20 episodes at any time, any place, wherever you get your podcasts from. Or, alternatively, head over to our Facebook, Twitter or Instagram pages where you can find the links to Acast where you can just listen to them on the web. Back to this episode. As usual, we're joined by two brilliant guests. For this episode's analysis, I talk to Harold Bergmeier, current Chicago staff bandmaster, about one of the first tone poems I remember playing as a young bandsman, and that is The Call of the Righteous by Leslie Condon. Before we delve into that music, let me introduce our interviewee, Dr. Clarence Adu, MBE. Clarence is a lifelong salvationist and musician who now resides in the Newcastle area. Clarence had a successful career as a trumpet player, performing with many fine UK orchestras and also as part of the UK jazz and pop scene. Clarence was also a founding member of the British Para Orchestra, performing at the London Paralympic Closing Ceremony alongside an obscure little band called Coldplay. Clarence is an absolute inspiration to many, the cover star of this week's Salvationist publication and a bit of a football expert. We actually recorded this interview back on the 24th of June during the initial stages of the Euro 2020 Football Club Tournament Thing Cup uh, thingamajigging. So that's worth bearing in mind anyway for one of our quirky quickfire questions that you'll hear. Well, thank you ever so much, Clarence, for agreeing to join us today. How are you keeping in these strange times? Well, um, I, I'm well um, at the moment, uh, uh, thanks, Matthew. Um, but um, through this year, I did get this dreaded virus. Um, fortunately, I wasn't hospitalised. It wasn't so bad. Um, it was pretty tricky times because there was a lot of people um, coming in and out of my house for medical reasons. Um, and so um, it's almost inevitable when it was uh, quite big up here in Newcastle. But um, I'm I'm a lot better now. Thank you. Good. Sorry to hear that, but glad to hear that you're feeling much better now. And uh, we've, we've had the pleasure of meeting very briefly a few times in the past at the uh, Northern Summer School, but I'm really excited to be chatting to you today to get to know a bit more about your life and your views on music as a whole and specifically Salvation Army music, but also about how your faith has led you through your life and shaped who you are today. So my first question, we're going to go back in time a little bit to your childhood. Could you tell us a bit about where you grew up and what some of your earliest memories are? Well, my parents are Ghanaian, and uh, they came over to England in the late 50s. And my father and mother came over because my father wanted to study a little bit more on uh, agricultural engineering. They were here for 10 years. And during that time, um, four of us uh, children were born, and um, my father was impressed with the education system here. So plan A was for us to um, go to school uh, in England and just during the holidays, uh, go to Ghana. I was gonna say, go back to Ghana, but I'd never been to Ghana. Um, and so um, we were fostered with friends of theirs. So they lived in Shubriness. So I grew up in uh, Shubriness, which is, small town down in Essex. Uh, my father reported back and said, there's a bit of a bad military coup going on in Ghana. Don't come back straight away. So this went on for a couple of years. And then he called us and said, okay, we should go back to Ghana or to Ghana. And um, because we'd never been there, it seemed a very strange request for us to get our minds around. So, um, we never went back and my father said, okay, you should get yourselves educated and upon leaving school, come and join us in Ghana. And um, that didn't happen because we got so integrated into British life. And as part of that upbringing, you grew up 
in the Salvation Army. What were some of your first contacts with the Salvation Army at that age? Well, my foster parents um, were Salvationists. So like a lot of uh, Salvation Army families, uh, we went along from a very uh, young age. And um, at the age of six, uh, I was given a cornet in my hand. Um, and so I uh, became a member of the YP band and the singing company. And uh, did you know when that cornet entered your hand for the first time, did you know that that was going to be a career path that you wanted to head down or was that a more gradual sort of realisation? That was probably more of a, a, a gradual realisation. We heard a lot of music um, in my house. My, my mother, foster mother, um, she uh, was interested uh, uh, in music and on the radio, the radio was on uh, sort of classical music playing most of the day. Um, and so we got very used to hearing that. Apart from that, she was also the core pianist. Um, she got this skill from playing uh, the organ in these old black and white cinema uh, uh, films. And she used to improvise, so she was, she was great at improvising uh, on the piano. Um, now, when I, was, I could barely stand, really, I would be at one end of the piano and I'd be playing random notes, tinkling around, and she would come in and start um, accompanying me. And so eventually, um, to my ears, whatever I was playing started to sound very good. And so, and of course it was just rubbish really. And, um, and when people came to visit the house, we often would perform to people and manage to fool them. Fantastic, what precious memories indeed. And uh, were there any other musical influences in your life at that time? The band leader really was um, uh, a real dedicated chap. He, he, he was uh, our, our local milkman. And so he had no training or not very much knowledge of um, brass teaching um, at all. Um, but his commitment dedication to our little band uh, was uh, amazing. Another uh, member of that YP band when I was there was Patrick Harold. Patrick Harold became tuba player in the London Symphony Orchestra. And so I saw him go from our little uh, YP band to um, a prestigious place like that. And so he was a great uh, influence on my life being a few years older than me. Fantastic. So now moving on a few years, uh, you went on to study trumpet at the Royal College of Music down in London. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that period in your life? Yeah, it, it was um, an important time for me because um, I wanted to do um, music. I'd said to myself that if God wanted me to do music for a career, then he needed to open the doors and um, uh, make things possible. And then of course it came to my audition at the Royal College. I rang them up 10 days before and said, who was going to accompany me for my cornet audition? The college said, we don't do cornet here. Um, it needs to be trumpet. So when I put the phone down, shouted up the stairs to my foster father and said, can I buy a trumpet before next week? So I went out and bought a trumpet. I went to do my audition uh, at music college. And um, uh, they said, uh, read in this form here, how long have you been uh, playing trumpet? I said, oh, do you mean the cornet? And they said, no, the trumpet. And I said, since Tuesday. They then said, can you wait outside whilst we discuss? And they were decided between themselves whether I was completely mad or very, very enthusiastic. And fortunately, um, they decided that I was the latter. So I um, entered the college for four years. And so that also answered my question of where I should be. Should I be doing music or something completely different? 
Fantastic. And uh, those doors certainly did open and you, you forged a very successful sort of freelance career for yourself. And we'll come back to talking about that in a moment. But just firstly, I want to touch upon the fact that you were also made the deputy bandmaster at your core of Shoebriness and later the bandmaster as well. Did you enjoy your time in those roles? Um, yes, I did. Um, I was a teenager at the time when I was made um, a deputy bandmaster. And I remember the first uh, rehearsal. Um, I stood up and uh, uh, we played for a couple of minutes. And then I wanted the, um, the basses, the tubers to uh, repeat something and, and play a bit better. And um, one of them shouted out at me, look, we don't want to become professional musicians. And now I wasn't a professional musician or even a music student then. And so, but I did say, um, surely we want our music to be the best that it can be for God. And um, that was the only time that anybody ever shouted anything out at me um, in a band practice. So let's go back to chatting a little bit more about your career as a professional trumpet player. And uh, you really made a name for yourself, not only as a classical trumpeter, but also as a jazz musician. Uh, you played with the Bournemouth Sinfonietta, uh, the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra, but also the Royal Northern Sinfonia. And also alongside that, you played alongside musicians like Courtney Pine and other high profile musicians. Can you tell me what it felt like as a young musician to be part of these ensembles and these experiences? Well, um, Courtney Pine, that's an interesting one. I, I, I just done a tour uh, in Europe and I was pretty tired. The phone rang, it was Courtney Pine and he was not that well known to me or uh, many people. We were, we were young, he was young. And he asked me if I could help him out in a concert that night. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I said, um, I didn't know who he was. I said, um, why don't you try these numbers? I gave him some numbers. Um, I said, try these numbers. And if you get stuck, uh, ring me back. And so, um, given his cue, he did try those numbers. He was stuck and he rang me back. And I said, okay, so I went along. And uh, I remember this um, theater or wherever we were playing, opening the door and seeing 20, 25 young, mainly black and ethnic minority, um, um, uh, young musicians. And what an energy they had playing that music. I didn't know any of them, hadn't heard or seen any of them anywhere. I really enjoyed playing with that band. Courtney, at the end of the evening, said, you did very well. Would you like to come along to one of our band uh, rehearsals uh, next week? So um, I did and became a member of the band for five years. Um, and so uh, that's how that happened. Um, maybe another one, which was a big learning curve for me, was when I got the opportunity to um, support Cliff Richard. Uh, I, I was in a supporting band and um, we used to play our little set. Then I used to stay behind and watch Cliff Richard and his band perform. And it wasn't long before um, uh, I got the opportunity to um, play in his band on some of the tours. And to me, they were really professional, very slick. And, um, and you know, the, the response from the crowds and things were always very exciting. Fantastic, absolutely. Um, now, doing my research for this interview, I came across uh, yourself on video chatting with uh, Wynton Masalis. And a great video, a really good watch, and I'd recommend that anyone out there goes and has a listen to that. And I believe you have quite a good friendship with uh, Wynton Masalis. Could you tell us about how you met and how this friendship's blossomed since? Well, um, when I was at music college, uh, my teacher, uh, Michael Laird said to me, uh, next week, Clarence, your lesson, along with another colleague of mine, was going to be at Abbey Road Studios. And I said, oh, Abbey Road Studios? And he said, yeah, just to listen to Maurice Andre, who was a French trumpeter, um, fantastic player and um, 
uh, on, especially on piccolo trumpet. So I um, went uh, to that day, which was mind blowing, that he could be playing all day without hardly making mistakes. Such a beautiful sound in all the ranges. And um, afterwards, I went to have tea uh, in the cafe um, after the session was over with my friend. And I'd previously seen Winter Marsalis on television um, in one of these late jazz programs. Um, he was very young um, and it was, uh, he was just really starting out um, really and getting a lot of his publicity. Um, I said to my friend, um, looking across the cafe, I said, that chap over there really looks like that American trumpet player, Winter Marsalis. So we, he didn't uh, know who he was. And uh, anyway, on the way out of the cafe, we passed very close by him. He looked up and he nodded at me and I nodded back. And I said, uh, I have to say, you really look like um, Winton Marsalis. Um, and um, he pointed down to his trumpet case and he said he was. And I said, oh my goodness, what, what are you doing here? And he said, oh, I'm over to record the Haydn Trumpet Concerto uh, at Mahamal with the English Chamber Orchestra. Um, and I said, are you doing that tonight? And because I was interested, he said, do you want to come to the session? I said, wow, I said, yeah, I'd love to. And so and that's really how it began. I said to my friend, are you going to go stay to this session? He said, oh, no, I've got to meet my girlfriend, you know. Um, that's what happens. And so uh, I met him and it's the first time in England. Uh, he didn't know anybody and uh, asked me the next day. And I came back the next day and we spent some time there, you know, chatting and looking at trumpets in his hotel. Um, and that progressed. Uh, every time he came over, I would go and see him. In August of 1995, your life changed dramatically. Uh, for those listening that aren't aware, would you be willing to tell us a bit about that day and how your life changed? Yeah, happy um, to, Matthew. And what happened, it was, um, yeah, August 1995. Saturday afternoon, I was driving my car from Newcastle to London, down the A1, got halfway down near the Nottingham area, and I felt my car sort of pulling and swerving um, a little bit. Um, and um, I was in the outside lane, um, there's lots of cars around, and I managed to get over to the hard shoulder quite quickly. Um, I was going along the hard shoulder. I applied the brakes to stop the vehicle, and the car shot up this bank, uh, which was quite steep, and somersaulted over. Um, and ended up facing the oncoming traffic in the A1. Fortunately, everybody around had seen this happen, um, and so nobody um, uh, crashed uh, into me. Um, the rolling of the car was the thing that did the damage. It broke my neck, the fourth vertebrae down, and that damaged the spinal cord, um, which meant um, from that point, there wasn't any communication between my brain and the rest of my body. I had a lot of uh, injections and painkillers and drugs uh, going into my body. And I became a bit confused then as to um, what the problem was. It wasn't until about two weeks later, really, that I sort of was coming round with a clear, um, uh, you know, getting, get the drugs and things out of my system. I tried to take my left arm out of the bed to change the television channel, and I couldn't. I couldn't do that. And it was a slow dawning process that something was very, very wrong. Um, I'd been fairly stable uh, up to that point, um, and then I had the operation done to my neck. Um, I came out of there, was on the ward, and. Um, the nurse came around to do the observations and I stopped breathing just as she was uh, got to my bed. Um, they had to bring the old machine around to bring me back round. Um, they then rushed me off to intensive care and a day or two, 
the same thing happened again. And I stopped breathing. And um, when I woke up, I was obviously facing the ceiling. And I said to God, I believe you brought me back for a purpose. Because there were several times when maybe it should have been the end. And I heard this very clear voice in my head say that God had a plan and a purpose for my life. The other thing that I heard God say was that um, I didn't need to worry about the future um, or anything like that. Um, and lastly, I heard that my life was going to be more fulfilled than it was before. And I said to God, I said to God, I don't know how up to date you are, but um, at the moment I'm lying here and I can't move a muscle. And so, Matthew, that was the easiest time. Then when I said to God, well, if you think you can do something with my life, um, please do it because I've got no agenda. I'm not going out to play five-a-side football anymore and I can't play the trumpet and uh, this and that and this and that. And um, from that moment onwards, it was quite amazing how God, first of all, I was on a ventilator um, and um, I couldn't speak. They thought that was going to be permanent. Within two days, they took the ventilator, uh, um, some tickets, because I was a brass player. But they took the ventilator away from me. And again, still lying on the bed, I wondered how I could get up and be used by God. And strangely enough, people started coming to my bedside and asking me how and why I felt so positive about things. After I had that um, discussion, or there wasn't a discussion, when I was informing God, updating him, um, a peace came over my body. Um, and it was very, very strange because I had no feeling, uh, uh, any normal feeling, but this peace came over my body and slowly, you know, the opportunity of people came to me and were asking me about my faith. And I could see how God works sometimes yeah, in a different way to us. And it's been amazing. Even, you know, part of this um, pod that I'm doing with you means that this testimony will reach uh, other people. So God has used me um, in an amazing way uh, since this time. I mean, thank you so much for sharing that with us, your testimony there, and uh, really thank God for the way he has used you to inspire um, and, and be a role model and, and an inspiration and faith to so many people all around the world. And uh, since then, you haven't allowed your disability to prevent you from making music either. And I know you've been a hugely inspirational musician and spokesperson ever since. Uh, one of the ways that you continue to make music still is with Headspace. Could you tell us a little bit about what Headspace is and how uh, it allows you to make music still and some of the opportunities you've had using it? In the early days of being at home, sorting out my life, um, having carers come to look after me, um, having special things um, put into the house, um, getting used to life in uh, an electric wheelchair, a musician called John Kenny uh, up in Scotland, who's doing lots of different projects with other people, um, said that he'd like sometime to do a project with a, a musician um, who's disabled. Um, and so some of his colleagues said to him, have you heard about Clarence at all? He didn't know me at the time. He contacted a chap called Rolf Gelhar, who was uh, an amazing chap at um, building, inventing a lot of uh, electronic uh, instruments. He worked for a while with Stockhausen and his family um, have a similar brain. For many years, they've been working at NASA. So he came and spent a couple of days with me uh, in my house. Uh, um, and we, we started talking about how it was possible for me to um, play an instrument. The only control I have over my body is my head. And um, 
I can control where that goes. And so we started looking at um, a laptop and software. And I said, I don't want an instrument that I can just push a button and turn on and off. I want something that can be expressive and do dynamics and things. And this man, Rolf Gelhar, managed to conquer that uh, request and come up with an instrument. We call it Headspace because my head moves around space um, with the movement. I wear a headset with sensors on and uh, I move my head uh, around left and right and um, it controls the mouse on the screen and I blow into a, a blow tube that comes down the side of my mouth uh, to uh, do that. Fantastic. And as well as making music with Headspace, I believe you also have some key roles within the Royal Northern Sinfonia still. I'm still employed with the Northern Sinfonia. They employed me because the chief executive said, your brain is still intact, Clarence, and working in your ears. Um, and I think you could be of good use to us. Um, and so uh, he gave me lots of different opportunities to do um, education work um, and I have uh, enjoyed um, being able to coach and direct um, different ensembles and write education projects. Having an instrument like mine and being disabled, I thought I could be a voice for young children. Um, and so we made a simplified version of my instrument and um, there's um, some projects going around, about 40 schools now, four zero schools in Britain um, using a similar instrument to mine. And another amazing experience in 2012, you were awarded an MBE for your services to music. How did you feel receiving that honour? Very humbled. I remember the letter came and um, my carer um, uh, opened the letter held it up in front of me and I read it and I read it very quickly and she said, what's this? And I said, more rubbish, just put it in the bin. So she tore the envelope up and I said, stop, 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 stop. Let me read it again because uh, they don't seem to be asking for money. So, um, and then I read it carefully and I thought, mm, maybe this is another scam. However, I'll keep it. So I put it in a drawer and I kept it. And I was, as time went on, I was hoping you had to keep it quiet. You weren't allowed to talk to anybody about this. And um, coming up to it, um, I was hoping a little bit of hope that it might be true. It would be incredible if it was. And um, uh, I was at work one day and on my computer, uh, when the press um, heard about it, I had all these emails come into my inbox from the media um, and then I was excited that this was going to happen. Um, the night before I remember going to bed thinking of all the things that could go wrong, I thought, you know, driving my chin control wheelchair, what happens if I slip and run over the Queen's foot and things like that. You think of silly things, things like that that make you worry. However, None of that happened. I also had to think about, I had to think about what, you know, I had the opportunity of spending one minute or 90 seconds to speak to royalty. What do I talk about? You know, um, but uh, on the day, um, um, it was uh, very, very enjoyable. Prince Charles was, uh, gave me the, uh, the MBE and it was amazing how many people were there and how much he remembered personally uh, myself without um, uh, any any notes or backup. The day was sort of uh, made even more interesting by the fact that um, when I re arrived on my wheelchair, they said you need to go around the side entrance uh, be uh, because um, you, you need the lift. So I went around the side entrance um, and inside they had a wall mounted lift. I said, these lifts are not good for me. I've probably broken nine of these out of 12. And they said, let's hope today isn't gonna to be one of those days. We started going up in the lift and the lift broke 
um, and it pulled it off the wall and so the noise and guffawing it made. People arrived within seconds. What do we do now? I said, you need to hold the lift, get me back down to the ground. And then that meant that we went to round another lift. Um, we came up in this other lift um, and that meant uh, unofficially, we got uh, half a tour of the other side of Buckingham Palace. Um, so that was interesting. Fantastic stuff. And uh, my final question for you, throughout all of your life, how has your faith affected and uh, shaped who you are today? Well, I think, Matthew, that the, um, uh, I've always prayed, not only, you know, forgot to open the doors into a music career, but whenever I've had to perform or do anything, like the simplest of gigs, um, um, whenever I've met people, even before coming to speak to you, I pray that God will um, give me the right things to say. I pray that God will help me to do the task ahead of me. And I pray that he will keep me humble and that I never think that I've done these things on my own strength. God has been faithful to me um, and you know, songs like his provision of being so true and uh, great is thy faithfulness um, is uh, some more words that um, has been absolutely true. And, um, and I used to quote um, a song that we had in the songbook, oh, for a trumpet voice on all the world to call and um, for all my Lord was crucified for all, for all, my saviour died. And even though um, I cannot physically hold a trumpet anymore at present, I believe he still wants me to use my voice as a trumpet. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Clowns. You really are an inspiration in so many ways. Now, just to finish off our interview, everyone that joins us on the podcast, I, I've got some quirky quickfire questions for you. So okay. Some of these are a bit serious. Some of them are probably quite wacky. So uh, we'll finish <laughs> off the, the interview with those. First question, have you got a favourite Salvation Army composer? Possibly Eric Ball. Have you got a favourite Salvation Army band piece? Many, but Song of Courage. Fantastic. Uh, have you got a favourite symphony? Um, Tchaikovsky 6. A lot of emotion in that and excitement. Absolutely. Um, what about a favourite passage from scripture? There's a verse that always blows my mind in James where he speaks about um, think, think yourself fortunate. This is my version of it. Think yourself fortunate when given difficulties and temptations because then you have the opportunity to grow stronger and have you got a favorite biblical character paul saul i guess excellent now i've got a few either or questions to you these may be a little bit challenging but bach or beethoven bach mozart or monteverdi mozart rossini or ravel ravel and uh, finally, Stravinsky or Stockhausen? Stravinsky. What's the most picturesque place you've ever visited? Um, Norway. Fantastic, great stuff. Now, the next question, a bit more bizarre, but it's backed by popular demand by me. Uh, if zoos operated like supermarkets, what animal would you take home? An, an elephant. An elephant. Fantastic. Um, now we're recording this in the midst of the uh, Euros football competition, but I think the interview is going to be going out after it's finished. Who do you think is going to win the competition? Italy. Italy. Fantastic. Well, well, people will know when this comes out if if you're correct or not. <laughs> and final um, question: If you could be a character from Harry Potter for the day, who would you be? Harry Potter. Fantastic. Yeah. Who else? <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Well, thank you so much for your words of testimony and thank you for everything you do and all those people that you continue to inspire. Thank you very much for the opportunity.
Thank you, Clarence, once again for giving up your time for that interview. I was certainly inspired and uplifted, and I hope you were at home too. Clarence will be joining us once again shortly to be put to the test in Band Mastermind. But now it's time for our analysis of Leslie Condon's The Call of the Righteous. Now I'm sure many listeners will be familiar with this piece as it's an absolute staple of the Salvation Army band repertoire for good reason too. But if you're new to the work, as with all of these analyses we do, I'd really recommend that you go and listen to the work in its entirety before we dissect it, and possibly even after too, to get a real sense of the flow, pace and structure of the music and the narrative as a whole. Well, thank you ever so much, Harold, for joining us today on Fully Scored. Real pleasure to have you here. How are you keeping? Ah, oh, very well. We're starting to see a little more daylight coming out of the pandemic, so it's going very well. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Always good news, indeed. So in today's analysis, we're going to be talking about a real classic piece of Salvation Army music, and probably in the top 10 for all Salvationist musicians, I'd hazard a guess, uh, and that is Leslie Condon's The Call of the Righteous. So before we jump into the score and and look at it in detail, could you give us a bit of a synopsis of the piece as a whole and and the thematic material and and the scripture that this music is uh, coming from? Sure. So I think that this is one of the finest Salvation Army pieces because it does succinctly what Salvation Army music, as I learned growing up, should do. And I did have the privilege of working with Leslie Condon. And what he taught me was that we don't have a lot of time to develop music like you would in an orchestra. And because we're so message based, we have to succinctly articulate the story. And the story here is the trumpet is going to sound according to scripture from many places. And at that time, there'll be this procession and this judgment and so forth. And so very simply with the trumpet call music that opens this piece and the song, uh, when the roll is called up yonder, the verse and chorus, all of the music, all of the eight minutes of this piece is kind of based off that premise. So to me, it's the wonderful marriage of really great music construction and the the message that we want to get across, which to me is the essence of Salvation Army music. And for you, where did you first come across this music? Do you remember the first time you encountered it? Actually, that is a hallmark moment. We had a music council when I was a kid, my core band went, I was probably 12. And I begged my parents that I could stay for this concert in the evening by which was then called the Pendle Youth Band. And long story short, I never imagined I wanted to play in that band that night, but I heard this, they finished the program with the call of the righteous. And I can remember visibly the symbol at the end and the trumpet call. And I just knew in that moment, I wanted to do that. Never imagining that I would lead that band for 34 years and write lots of music for that band. And uh, just was a quintessential moment. And then I had the privilege, of course, later of working with Les Condon on my music and just that interaction. So it's really special. And I've done it so many times over different seasons. And I just really enjoy them because it just really connects with both players and the audience. And the story is just really clear. Absolutely. So now let's uh, we'll dive into the score. And just to remind listeners at home, if they wish to follow along with the score, they can go onto the Salvation Army Music Index and uh, download the score there. opening. Do you want to talk us through this uh, opening passage? So this opening, which someone told me once Les Condon had on his mind for a long time, um, kind of opening dotted rhythm, it's in the minor, um, summons, you know, it's just this brave call, it sits in a perfect register for the cornets, and as a section we have to bring that together. So he uses the dotted rhythm, and then the la da ba bum bum that stuff later we get fragments of that all through the piece so we have just this united voice of this cause this great call and it's the strength of the upper register and the voice of that trumpet calling out 
And then the response, of course, is, is just really great where the euphonium then takes that trumpet call and you have a kind of tread um, ascending parallel chord accompaniment. And then um, really interesting is the answer. The tubas are answering euphonium like a beat behind, if you see that, like the third and fourth bar of A. And then there's this wonderful moment where it gets quiet, where the euphonium is held by itself, just um, three bars before B, kind of creates an interesting tension to kind of just take us momentarily back to the unison where we started and um, kind of create some drama there. That's the opening summons. So that takes us to letter B and we have our first introduction of the tune, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. Could you give us a little bit of an insight into that tune and perhaps how the words fit with the message of this music? Yeah, so for sure, the cornets are going to do at this point, at letter B, playing with mute. So the, in, it's kind of like a distant call because it's muted over the tread of these martyrs and believers processing. Um, and interestingly enough, just from a minor chord to a major chord and back and forth, very simple gesture. Um, and then you have these, uh, you know, you'll have a phrase of cornets, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, time shall be no more, as answered by the euphoniums and trombones, kind of as a choir together, recalling the trumpet call. So there's still the echo of that call. And it's at different dynamic levels as we go through this section. So it has different intensity, which suggests different distance. Are we getting closer with our procession to the place or is it still far away? So it creates this kind of interesting, but you never lose the tread until the 12th bar of B on the phrase. So the phrase is when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. It's as though time stops. There's two quavers on the downbeat there. And in fact, the tread stops. And um, I find that, um, like if you've ever been in line, you know, when you're waiting in a queue and the line stops moving, what do you do? You look forward to see what happens, right? So I find it almost a little humorous because we just want to check that we're okay, that we're still in line and we're still going to move forward. And of course, it's not too long after that, the tread comes back. So at letter C, uh, the style of the music changes. We have this sort of quite flamboyant little rhythm in the snare drum and the sax horns take over with a melody. Could you talk us through this section? So this is the chorus of when the roll's called up yonder, just simple two-bar harmony. Um, the other, we haven't mentioned this before, but this is one of the earliest pieces that timpani was actually written for and published for. And so the combination of the snare drum and timpani give this almost jocular, like it's a little funny undercurrent of the walk. Like maybe it's getting a little more relaxed now, right? And we might be enjoying us like lifting our wings a little bit. And over it though, is uh, the cornets now with their mutes out playing open this kind of um, salute to the departed, like a taps kind of trumpet call. And that kind of changes the soundscape. So, but it does, it's very simple change of kind of complexion of the music that kind of is now going to transition us to a more buoyant section. And then letter D, the music kicks up a gear and we move into tempo gisto, um, two bars after D. And what's happening here in the narrative of the music? Yeah, I think this is the greatest moment. I think, you know, people knew about Les Condon's humor. Um, the, he creates offbeats uh, with the same harmonies as the tread, but this time we go from major to minor. Instead of before the tread was from minor to major, it's very ominous. Now we're going to major. So suddenly there's this change of character and it's offbeats. And I think the tempo jetso is because there's a temptation to keep rushing once you land that third bar of D. So there's a small accelerando, and we do want to transform kind of some more buoyant atmosphere, right? So the cornets take up the tune in thirds and against the euphoniums playing the trumpet call, kind of railing against that, right? Um, but the humor I find is, you know, as you speed up the gate, those processing are trying to make sure they don't miss getting to the pearly gates. It's almost as though you're kind of clamoring when you're in line and kind of skip ahead. And I just want to make sure I make it. So to me, that's what I hear in that. And the gesto is just, oh, we're almost there. And 
but I got to make sure I don't miss the gate because, you know, <laughs> this is it, right? <laughs> That's this kind of funny thing. And then I think he turns the tables a little bit because Leslie Condon does, because then we end up this somehow all of a sudden you're in this pastoral scene, you know, when we transition to the next section. So, but that's the humor I read into it. I might be true. There's a little and letter E recollection of the trumpet call. And that closes this whole first section that we'll call the trumpet summons section. And now we're going to move to the pastoral section. What is the significance of this pastoral section, again, in the overall narrative of the music? So um, I may have mentioned this earlier, but the second line of the verse reads, the morning eternal, bright and fair. So to me, one of the miraculous things about the piece is the shape of the piece is pretty much narrated in the song, 559, I think it is. That first line, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more, that was what we just finished. And now we're in this section, which paints the picture of the eternal, bright and fair. And I don't know as a listener, if I understood that even as a 10 year old in that balcony that night, that that was what I, but I did realize it is something very beautiful that I couldn't put my finger on, very evocative, very ethereal, you know? And I think that, that part again speaks to the idea that the music matches what we're trying to say. Um, so what happens is to even press that further is he pres presents this pastoral melody, which mirrors the shape of, not many people realize this, but mirrors the shape of when the role is called up yonder, but now kind of in a languid triple meter and it's first presented by a solo cornets. And then um, we have this genteel kind of transitional music at G, um, which is a little unexpected, but still kind of crystalline and pure and totally different than the declamatory opening, right? So gentle. Um, and then there's this dramatic climax, the eighth, I guess it's about the eighth bar of G, slight retardendo, and then a broader, more intense 2D version follows in the next section, you know, with the whole band. And the feature of that is this horns shadowing the melody. Um, it's Mark Prominante at the score repeating the pastoral theme, but this is a canon at the fifth, which is a technique that Leslie Condon uses often. It's in the present age and some of the things, you know, um, this kind of trailing thing. And it's just marvelous the way the tune shadows. ends up, six before I, ends up trailing and doing the last bit by itself. That's magical because you haven't had this color of the horn and it's only accompanied by uh, the phonium basses kind of descending by step. And then we have this Bam, 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 you know, with the tenuta there, bam, bam, tenuta first in the tuba euphonium, then in the trombones, um, and then the horns. And something very, you're anticipating something. It's remarkable in that, that little figure. And of course, the chords move a little slightly. And then one of the characters that I hear here at ear, but I never understood was the augmented triads. So these triads with the raised fifth kind of create this mysterious, you know, you're anticipating something very expected, it's very simple. And then this magical moment with the E flat tuba and one last whisper of bomb, 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 bomb from the trombones in seconds, and then we're off. But that closes out the pastoral section. 
Excellent. And just actually what you said there earlier about sometimes we can hear this music when we're younger and not understand any of the words or the meaning of the music. And I think that's some of the beauty of Salvation Army music in particular. We can hear the music still receive a blessing just from that sort of aural perception of it. But then as we learn about the scripture and we learn about the music, it deepens our understanding and we receive blessings there. It's uh, something I think quite unique and, uh, and wonderful. So that takes us into letter J. Once again, the music picks up. We lift again. Could you talk us through this Allegro Siciliante section? <laughs> I think one of the remarkable things about, this is about the construction of the piece. Everything on this page comes out of that trumpet call and the opening trumpet call, but you don't really realize it. So there's these transformations of these fragments of the trumpet call, and but they've been transformed to another kind of, almost frightening picture, right? It's, you're anticipating something. And so it's anticipatory, but it's almost frightening. And right down to the huge drum thud, you know, at the end of two bars before K, um, kind of like the Verdi Requiem a little bit, just boom, right? And then this little whisper of a figuration that's expelled by the trombones, just declaring, declaring asking, querying the question, you know, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? And we're back to these kind of parallel chords underneath it to kind of exclaim. And then the cornet's answer, uh, the rest of the lyric, which maybe I knew as a kid, I don't know, but are you washed in the blood of lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are you white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of lamb? And then there's an interlude, kind of crafting very light, delicate, um, first the solo horn has a little solo, then the soprano, and very simple chords behind it. And there's a sudden fiery kind of buildup um, that has the trombones asking again the judgment question, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? So that scintillante is just fantastically clear on the score. And yet the querying the question, and I think even if I didn't know those words, Matthew, to your point, I knew we're being asked something. And of course, it's trying to be the judgment question, we'll call it, you know, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? So, yeah. And if you don't know those, those questions in the words there, how does the music still make it feel like it's a question? Is there a particular technique that Condon uses here? Yeah, I think uh, the, the ascending triads for one, that is like, uh, that but the, first of all the declaration and then there's like this chatter like you're supposed to be trying to make a response and then there's even it's almost like the cornets are shouting bah, 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 against all this sound against all that sound there's some kind of querying going on that um there's got to be a response you need to make a response it's like really in your face questions yeah that's how i see it but <laughs> so when we get to letter M, is there a response? Are these questions answered here in the music or do we have to wait a little bit longer for that? Well, see, roll is called up yonder. It's not quite a question because the question words are not there. But there are these nibbles. First of all, the ostinato. Horns answer roll is called up yonder. So it's like, you know, this ascending arpeggiation is kind of querying the question, but it's like it's settling in, like something's gonna happen. Now this is the part I remembered as a kid because in this performance, they had not just one cymbal player, not two, the three, they kept adding cymbal players. <laughs> and then characteristically, most of us make a crescendo, the fourth bar, oh, right before the big band entrance. But anyway, the cymbal's rolling, and we had the return of the core, the cornets, solo cornet section in the original key, like we're home, right? And this is the call, and this is the real one because we're now going when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and you know the trombones are now going to intone with the whole band. This verse, so this that to me is in the present tense at that moment because the words are when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. It's like now we're declaring this is the moment. Because kind of, even if you didn't know that lyric, you've got something's going on here. So we have that trombone tune with, again, these ascending 
kind of chords. And but very cleverly, the fanfare works over it from the opening summer, right? And then uh, where are we? Four before P, he gives the trumpet la ba bim bum bim bum bum a piece of the trumpet theme to the basses, which creates a little drama and there's a little crescendo that happens there. And then he splits it in half, and we have this demuted phrases, you know, with the soprano and the solo horn. You know, doing that. And then we have this moment, we now get to the chorus. When the role is called up yonder, we're not asking anymore. This is the moment. And it's being exchanged between the trumpets, uh, the cornets and trombones. Um, so that actually suggests a whole lot of people like this exchange, like a big choir, a uh, big host of thousands or the, you know, the righteous host. Underneath it, we have the ostinato for the tubas and then the triplet accompaniment. So there's actually four elements going on there and really cleanly scored. Horns and baritones, very clear. You can see everything just very clearly. One characteristic is this bass drum thing on the downbeat um, <clears throat> or timpani, whatever the case may be. And it's like almost you can't have enough of that because that's like the, the final, you know, tread, you know, that kind of feeling of that pulse. And then at letter Q, it transitions to, he uses the last phrase when the role is called up yonder, kind of sequentially, develops sequentially, the dynamics drop and it creates a tension. And this is a great moment where the trombones, triple octaves and the timpani sound for kind of the final time, the opening rhythm of the trumpet call against, you know, lots of action. One more timpani kind of moment. And then we rip into this um, fantastic coda and what I like about this coda is, first of all, I talked earlier about how succinct we have to be as Salvation Army writers. So in only, I don't know, 16 bars, 12 bars, this coda does so much in such a short amount of time. It says to me, there's like an intense sense of urgency. And it's for you, the listener, not just the person who's been part of the story, but now for you, it's being applied to you. And there's even a desperation I feel in the full bodied chords, like I better figure this out. And there's not much time, which is the story, right? And so, so these kind of full body chords sounding over this exciting percussion. Um, and then we conclude with these units and octaves, like, and it's kind of locked in. So I just think those few bars you know, some of the, there's flourish to it, kind of quoting the, you know, quoting the trumpet call, but it's just so succinct. And I think that's really, for me, kind of a hallmark of Leslie Condon's music that the message is so clear, but it's done in such a succinct way. And I guess I could quote, just to finish this, he says about this section in his notes, he says that the conclusion is a strong reminder that the saved earth who gather over on the other shore are those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb. So for me, that's kind of the quintessential or essential message for us as Salvationist musicians and for our listeners. Thank you so much and uh, wonderful music and an even more wonderful message and truth there. Thank you so much for joining us and giving up your time to talk through that piece, Harold. It's been a real pleasure to have you on Fully Scored and hopefully one day we'll hear even more from you. Thanks, Harold. Great speaking with you and thanks for your time and preparation that went into that interview. It's time for you now to participate with Band Mastermind at home. The rules are very simple. In a moment, I'll play a short snippet of a band piece. If you can identify the piece and composer, let us know on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. The first person to let us know will get a mention in the next episode. This week's bonus brownie points go if you can identify the artist and the album 
that the snippet is taken from. Now, mentions. Well done to both Nicholas Brill and Darren Waterworth, who were our band mastermind at home champions from our last episode. Also, well done to those who spotted the error with one of our questions. Extra bonus brownie points go to you. The correct answer to who is the bandmaster at the Box Hill Call Sydney should have been Graham Roper. Here's today's Bandmastermind at Home snippet. us know. Well now it's time for us to welcome Clarence back for Bandmastermind. Could we have a shake up of the leaderboard? Does a new champion perhaps loom over the horizon? Let's find out. So Clarence Adu, you'll have one minute and 30 seconds to answer as many band trivia questions as possible. Are you ready to play Band Mastermind? Yes, yes, yes. Fantastic. In that case, your time starts now. George Marshall was a bandmaster of which Northeast England corps? South Shields. Correct. Which city is Charles Fry considered the first SA bandmaster buried in? Concept. Uh, not quite, I'm afraid. Uh, which Eric Ball song is featured in Kevin Norbury's work, Bored? Pass. Uh, okay. Uh, published in 1966, who is the author of Play the Music Play, A History of Salvation Army Bands? Pass. Okay. Uh, what is the title of the march named after the National Music School based in Kent, England, and composed by Norman Bearcroft? Cobham Hall. Correct. Geoffrey Nopes, the composer of Prelude on Lavenham, was one time the bandmaster of which core band? Was it Portsmouth? Correct. Raybos was uh, also the bandmaster of which core band in North London? Yeah. Um, not Southall. It was, uh, I'll say Southall. Come Incorrect, I'm afraid. Uh, what are the names of the two Venables brothers who currently sit principal corner in the New York and Canadian staff bands, respectively? Um, is one on Andre's? Um, uh, well, uh, not quite, I'm afraid. Well, I think we've got time for just one more question. Which corner solo includes the song One Life to Live by Robert and Gwyneth Redhead? Um, abundant. Life, life Abundant. Fantastic. That was absolutely correct. Excellent stuff. I don't think it was excellent stuff. <laughs> that gives you a score of four, which puts you about halfway up the bandmaster oh, yeah, yeah. leaderboard. So not bad at all. I'll just talk you through the questions you didn't quite get the answers for. Oh, yes. so, so the city that Charles Fry is buried in is Glasgow. Wow. Um, the Eric Ball song, which is featured in Kevin Norbury's work, or Bard is Morning Song. What? Uh, the author of the book Play the Music Play is Brindley Boone. And Raybose was the bandmaster of Harlston in North London. And the names of the two Venables brothers who currently sit principal corner in the New York and Canadian staff bands are Marcus and Brindley. So, as I said, a score of four there on Bandmastermind, which is a good score indeed. How do you feel about that? Probably better than I than I was expecting. 
Fantastic. Well, thanks once again, Clarence. It really has been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, that brings another episode to its conclusion. So here's my little coda. I really hope that you've enjoyed this episode, as with all episodes. If you have, don't forget to share the episode or even leave us a review on our Facebook page or even iTunes. If you haven't already, find Fully Scored on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to keep up with the latest news on releases and even some bonus footage. We'd love to hear what you think of the podcast. If you love it, hate it or simply just tolerate it. Or even if you have any suggestions or questions you'd like asking in future episodes. Don't hesitate to get in touch. Time for the thanks. Huge thanks once again to Clarence and Harold for making the time to record with us and imparting your wisdom to us all. Much appreciated. Thanks also to our producer, Simon Gash, who really does put an enormous amount of work into editing every episode. Thanks, Simon. And final thanks go to you, our listeners, wherever you are, whenever you're listening to this. Take care, goodbye, and God bless. (laughs) 